Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Daniel Podreski, Regional Vice President of Operations for the UK at PPHE Group. Coming up on today's show... Daniel maps out the two key rules for becoming a successful hotel GM. Number one, don't burn the hotel down. And number two, don't pee in the flower pots. Phil may have missed something in the news. Well, there's nothing going on in the world, is there? And Daniel highlights that even after 25 years in the business, you've never quite seen it all. The security guard got a little bit cautious when the guy picked up a snake. All that and so much more as Daniel talks us through his story and journey to date with real energy. This was recorded remotely and some occasional sound loss was experienced, so apologies for that. Don't forget to give us a like and a share. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today we go big brand, big hotels and a big role as we welcome to the show the Regional Vice President of Operations for the UK at PPH, sorry, PPHE Group, Daniel Predreski. Morning, Phil. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, thank you. Uh, all things considered. Um, yeah, well, there's nothing going on in the world, is there? Depends which radio station you listen to. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That's actually very true. Yeah, where in the world are you at the moment? Uh, I'm in uh, sitting this morning in our Park Plaza, Victoria. Um, so we've returned to our head office, which is located in the original County Hall building, so just behind the London Eye. Um, yeah, and yeah. I try and start each morning by just popping into at least one of the properties before I get into the office and bog down with uh, all the different people. Very good. Yeah, well, and the, the sun is out today. It's like we're definitely getting an Indian summer at the moment. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, thankfully, uh, not as, uh, as hot or um, humid as it had been in August, but uh, it's given us a nice little reminder. Yeah. Absolutely. Before we head into darkness. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, as I mentioned in the uh, the little preamble at the beginning, you've uh, you've got certainly on the face of it something of, of a, a big role, but I'm guessing you didn't just arrive there. Uh, there must be a, a bit of a journey and a story to have gotten you there. So perhaps you could take us all the way back to the beginning and, and just give us a, a walkthrough of your, your life so far. Wow. You don't have to start at birth. I should say that. <laughs> Listen, I think uh, it's it's been one of the great things about the the whole of the lockdown is people have become very, very creative in terms of their writing, their reaching out and linking in. And one of the things I've seen in all these great LinkedIn, uh, you know, posts that people have put and, of course, other services are available. Um, <laughs> you know, people saying, you know, I've now been in the industry 20 years. I've been at 25 years. They talk about how they started in their small local hotel a local pub, hot washing, all of that, without any real desire to make catering or hotel keeping their profession and then become infected. Uh, and I'm guilty of all of the above. Right. So, uh, I started um, at uh, the age of 15, uh, basically because um, I wanted to go on a holiday. And my mom said, yeah, OK, if you want to go on the holiday, go out and earn the money for it. So I knocked on the door of my local hotel which is Marine Hotel in Sutton in Dublin. And I started off with the glorious title then of what was called a lounge boy. So well, that conjures up some images. You were involved doing table service, serving that. And then if you were on the early shift, it would involve uh, stopping the bar, cleaning the fires, resetting the fire. 
And at one stage, the GM and the exec chefs to me said, you, you seem to enjoy this. Uh, would you ever consider doing it for a career? And at that stage, to be perfectly honest, I'd, I'd never thought about hotel keeping as a career. Um, I had a look into yeah. it. And I thought, actually, do you know what? I think this is right. So I went into the Dublin College of Catering, as it was then. And I did business studies and hotel management. And that really kind of set me on the on the route um, and fully embedded me, um, you know, into the industry. So uh, at that stage then, I had two great, two great placements. Uh, my first placement, I went to America um, and I worked in food service there. So right. I got my first exposure to so um, I worked in the laundry uh, department there uh, as well during the summer, came back, did my second year, and then um, I was recruited in Dublin for what was then the London Tara, which was owned by Aer Lingus. So that was in 1987, and that really was, was a foundation placement for me. So I'd worked in a 30-bedroom hotel in Ireland, hadn't really seen anything in scale, and then suddenly arrived in this 830-bedroom hotel occupancy mid-90s the amazing leadership of uh, Owen Dillon that was the year he won or during my placement period he won hotelier of the year we had I think two acorn winners we had the executive um, housekeeper of the year awarded so really really dynamic property love that so much I asked if I could come back on a management placement scheme and they said uh, they didn't have one they only had schemes for one year uh, block, you know release from college to come back so I went out and I wrote out my own one-year training plan so before I left I went to HR and knocked on the door and just said oh by the way I said I'm, I think I'm coming back next June and I think this is the training program I'm going to do so I don't know whether it was a combination of just luck or blind ignorance on my part, but uh, they agreed to take me back. Um, right. So after I left and graduated from Colbert Street, I came back and did a fantastic one-year training um, in uh, all around the hotel, every department that you can think of. And at the end of that, then I joined the duty management team. So it, and it's something I still joke about with um, some of my colleagues you know, from those days, because at 22 years of age, you were handed the biggest bunch of keys, all jangly, all pre-electronic locks. Um, and yeah. you, were, you were given at least one uh, pager, sometimes two, if somebody needed to not uh, nip out to the shops for an hour or so. Um, and then you became the duty manager of that hotel. Um, yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I think, I think it was that whole um, seeing the opportunity rather than the pitfalls. And I had an amazing um, 18 months or so there working as a duty manager, it included night management shifts with a great, great team, you know, fantastic structure. I think that's a, a, a key point on, on attitude. You know, that's a, it's a hell of a lot of responsibility for a young person, in inverted commas, to take on. But, you know, you, I suppose you, you do look at these things in in one of two ways you either look at it and go my god that's beyond me or you you look at it and go wow look at the opportunity i've been given and it seems that you've you took the latter approach listen all of the duty managers um in there and there were um generally six of us working at the time uh, it was we were all the same we'd all graduated we were all the same age but and i suppose that also reflects on the faith that the company had and particularly own dylan in growing and developing all of us as young managers yeah so yeah i i i agree i think but it, it was 
I was able to avail of a fantastic opportunity, a fantastic setup, a fantastic structure, and a fantastic ethos that was there. So um, love to say, you know, no, I battled against the odds and everything was against me. It, it wasn't. It was a it was a very it was a very smooth road um, to go down. Yeah, and I guess equally as important is having a, a a leadership team who are are happy to impart responsibility yeah. on those who don't necessarily have the experience. Yeah, I, uh, because how else do you get the experience, right? Correct. Uh, you've you've nailed it in one field. That that to me was the real opportunity. And I suppose the next thing then that's actually quite um, relevant to the situation we find ourselves in now, because the the company in the interim had been bought out by Copthorne, and um, they just opened the Copthorne Hotel in Slough, and that had opened. And forgive me on the timing, but almost immediately after the opening of the hotel, there was the advent of the first Gulf War. Wow. Right. Um, when I when I talk about the first Gulf War, particularly with you know my team now, so this was uh, 91, 92, um, they kind of go, what? A has there ever been a Gulf War? And then wow, was there more than one? <laughs> which puts yeah. which puts everything into relevance. And what happened then was the hotel was restructured uh, in terms of the leadership team because it couldn't sustain the uh, opening team. And five of us were moved out from the what was then the Copthorne Tower, and we were given HOD positions running the hotel. Right. And that continued for uh, three years. So we that was my first position then as a reception manager. So I ran reception for a year. Massive shock. In whereas previously, as a duty manager, when you finish your shift, as long as your log is written up, you've everything left. You hand over your keys and your pager, and you go off in your merry way. And that was the first real shock insofar as, well, I had responsibility. Um, you know, it, it, it didn't end. I had nobody to hand it over to. Yep. So I had three fantastic years there. So I did spent my first year as um, front office manager, second year as front office manager. So I got nights uh, and the night auditor. And then the next year, then I was made front of house manager. So, yeah, again, fantastic opportunity. The times that were in it, we all had to multi-skill. So we would, depending on the day of the week and the pattern of arrival, I could quite as equally be uh, the breakfast host, welcoming everybody in uh, until breakfast finished, and then then jump behind the desk to get everybody out. Yeah. Or if we had something in the evening, you'd um, do the bar, you know, the, the pre the pre dinner bar and conferencing, and then move over. Um, so yeah. Great, great time. Really, really enjoyed it. And then uh, I started, I made a change and I moved over to uh, the Runnymede Hotel in uh, Surrey. Yep. And I worked there because my career to that stage, I'd spent more or less five years in front house. So I wanted to get back into food and beverage again at a more senior level than I'd been when I was working through college. So I did just under a year in the Runnymede in Surrey as a bar and lounge manager, which was a fantastic experience. And if nothing else, it convinced me that it's different uh, courses for different horses. Yeah. And the the challenge of running a an operation on the banks of the Thames that was absolutely entirely weather dependent. So if the sun wasn't shining, you were really busy. Um, on a on a Sunday or a, a Saturday, if the sun shone and everybody decided to take Granny and Granddad for a drive around the River Thames and 
to win the ballpark and then come to us for afternoon tea or an early dinner, then you were beyond. Yeah, I can imagine. I've actually uh, seen that that hotel from the water. I've uh, gone past it in a narrow boat. Yeah, it's just what an aspect it has. Listen, it was it was absolutely fantastic, and I, I think you know, in terms of the Levy brothers when they took it and how they developed it. Um, you can see then how they took that footprint um, and used it for how they developed the Grove. So, you know, when I see the Grove and the success of that and, and the, the service offering, uh, you can trace its DNA back to the running lead. Right. So that was there. Then I uh, moved over for the first of my two stints in Grosvenor House. So I was fortunate enough. I got the opportunity to go in as banqueting manager number six. <laughs> right. So... Um, that sounds like uh, when people are handing out parts in theatre. There, um, you know, you were you were banqueting manager number six, which means that there were uh, m- many more people in front of you. Uh, no, most definitely. And uh, you know, I I think um, if you think about the early nineties in terms of the formality, the structure, tails until six o'clock, changing at six o'clock into black tie with your rose, whether you were on the floor or just sitting in the office doing admin. But it was a remarkable opportunity. You were given each banqueting role had specific responsibilities. So I was responsible for all of the private receptions that would happen before an event in in the great room. There were up to 36 small suites that you may have to have private receptions in and all of those. I was going to say, the the facilities there are extensive yeah. in that department, aren't they? Yeah. So, you know, it was it was a massive, massive eye-opener for me. You know, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. In the last four months, um, there was a vacancy in the liquor department. So I ran the liquor um, depart- banqueting liquor department for, prob- I think it was about four months uh, until the new uh, incumbent came through. And I think, and again, the numbers may evade me. I think at that stage, it was somewhere between an eight and 10 million pound um, liquor business that was in there. Right. Uh, all of that. Well, all of this is, you probably maybe didn't realize it at the time, or maybe you did. I, I, I don't know, but you're you're just kind of chipping away at little extra bits of experience that I'm guessing you know, ultimately make a big difference into to your knowledge of the business and how you can lead, et cetera, et cetera. But did you know it at the time? Did, were you conscious of making these decisions or did they just kind of happen to you? I think because I always viewed myself as an operator, I always, I was always of the opinion that you couldn't lead unless you could operate. Yeah. And, and that, that was something that Probably it came from came from my father, you know, just lis- listening to him, his work environment and what he was doing in terms of those who could who knew what they were talking about um, and those who those who didn't. So I, th- I think for me, that was the important thing. that if you, if you were going to do it, you needed to know how to do it properly. It was they were relatively easy, easy decisions to make so because they were great organizations. They were working with great people. And I suppose that's one thing I would say to people, you know, um, necessarily choose the job, choose your boss, who you're going to work for. Yep. So who is it who's going to be able to offer you opportunities, see what potential you have and fly top cover for you as and when it's required. You know, I think one of the challenges occasionally is that people are put in a position where they make a mistake. You know, if I'm firmly of the opinion if somebody works for me and makes a mistake, 
what's my responsibility in them making the mistake yeah yeah and you know one one of the principles we've got is you know um, was it a man was it a managed decision yeah yes it was so did you yeah, consult yeah. the stakeholders did you have a look at it did you assess the opportunities everything else okay did it go wrong yes, okay. okay fine um, did you learn yeah slash return move on and i i suppose you know that was the thing for me i was really able to learn so that period in grosvenor house i was working under andrew coy you know, for anybody in the banqueting world, and you, I, I, I talk to the younger um, banqueting members that we have now, and when they talk about innovation and what they've learned, you can almost draw a spider's web. And most of the key banqueting managers in London at some stage have all worked under Andrew Coy. Right. So, you know, I learned, I learned my trade definitely under him. He moved then to uh, one Whitehall place. Yep. which was in the National Liberal Club in Whitehall, adjacent and connected to the Royal Horse Guards Hotel. And it had been, uh, the floors had been abandoned for a number of years. So when I went into the show round, there were actually pigeons flying uh, in the banqueting rooms. Goodness. And, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I signed up with him on a one-year contract as the pre-opening operations manager. So, so the whole way through construction, working all of that. So designing the spec, what did we want it to be? Again, Mr. Peel from Thistle uh, gave us a great opportunity to say, okay, we don't have anything five-star in the portfolio. You guys are going to come in. So there was, I think five of us left Grosvenor House and went in at that stage to run it. Wow. A a hell of a leap of faith. Again, but made very, very simple in terms of the faith of Mr. Peel um, in terms of Thistle and his vision as to what he wanted to be. And then the uh, the move with Andrew Coy and Mark Gannon, who was his number two there and my immediate boss in terms of how we were going to do it. Yeah, great, great opportunity. We saw it the whole way through right from construction. The uh, I actually spent my gardening leave from Grosvenor House with the building firm because they weren't able to take me on in my role as ops manager. And I just said, well, listen, I'm free for a month if you're stuck for anything. And I got a call the next day. So I went and uh, worked for the for the builders as a labourer. So with that, we got it up, we got it set and running, and that was absolutely fantastic. Did it, um, and then towards the end of my year, I got a call from uh, Millennium to say, did I want to go back to the company? And at that stage, the Millennium Bailey's Hotel just had its first refurb and was converted into a boutique hotel. So it was really one of the few boutique hotels at the time. Yeah. So um, I had the opportunity to go there, the Millennium Gloucester next door, and then they were building the Millennium Conference Centre. So um, I was hired and I went back as the uh, front of house manager for the complex. So I ran uh, the two reception teams, um, porters, concierge, everything for both properties, so again, combined just under, uh, sorry, just over 800 bedrooms. I did that for, I think about 15 months. And then I was asked if I wanted to become the operations manager just for Bailey's itself. Um, so I took over uh, as operations manager for Bailey's. So that was responsible for all of the food and beverage and um, the uh, front office. And I think after about a year, I was asked then if I would be the food and beverage director for complex working alongside Chris Thompson, who's now at the Mandarin Oriental. Um, so he was heading up the Millennium Conference Center. And if I'd work alongside him as the director of food and beverage for the complex, 
So did that for, again, approximately a year. So I, I spent just four years at the complex there. And then I got the call to ask if I wanted to go back to Grosvenor House as the um, director of food and beverage operations. Right. So for, yeah, I think uh, just over five years after I'd left uh, Grosvenor House, um, I returned then. And that was where there was a significant structural change. Previously, um, you had three very distinct businesses that operated in Grosvenor House. You had conference and banqueting. You had 86 Park Lane, the, the um, 22 beautifully appointed small uh, meeting rooms on the first floor. And then you had the food and beverage offer. And they all had their separate structures, separate directors and operated. And under the uh, very dynamic Paolo Bishoni, he wanted to unite the three of them. So um, I came as the director of food and beverage operations, uh, working under uh, Paul Bidgood, who had just at that stage done the reorganization of Cafe Royal. Right. I stayed at Grosvenor House then for three years. And eventually when, when Paul moved and relocated to Australia, I became the director of food and beverage there. So uh, fantastic time. Lots of change. Then. And again, it's another period of what happens when there's massive uncertainty in the marketplace. And what happened then, Phil, was that was during the period of 9-11. Right. Okay. Uh, and that was momentous on that day for two occasions because it was also the date of the birth of my firstborn. Uh, oh, wow. She, she was actually born on the morning. So you, re you remember it for two reasons. I, that most, day. I most definitely do. And what happened then, obviously, the uh, financial shock that came at the back of that. And you may remember that was at the period with um, the Royal Bank of Scotland, yeah. where they had compiled this massive portfolio with Le Meridian. So Grosvenor House was rebranded Le Meridian. A whole host of hotels were included in that deal. The Waldorf was there. The Cumberland was involved. Goodness, I'd actually forgotten about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, working then in parallel with Keith and Chris Cooper at Restaurant Associates, the buzzword of the period then was about uh, sticking to core activity. So the principle was that the food and beverage would go to a specialist and Restaurant Associates were going to take over. And from memory, I think there were 18 hotels in the London portfolio. They were going to run all the food and beverage in that, which meant then that the hotel operators and the general managers would just concentrate on their key function, which was uh, accommodation. Right. So um, the first hotel that came over was the Waldorf Hotel. So um, the reorganization of that, the new food and beverage concepts, the restaurant associates did all of that. And then one of the next ones to go was to be uh, the Cumberland and closely followed by Grosvenor House. So I was very fortunate. I got a tap on the shoulder from Restaurant Associates, and they said to me, well, listen, you know we're going to be taking over all of the food and beverage anyway, so your position won't exist in Grosvenor House. Would you like to come across and help us in Restaurant Associates and become an operations manager right. uh, with the rollout as we take everything over? So I said, yeah. Okay. Very interesting project, I guess. Yeah, it, it was because... That was the direction of travel at that time. You know, uh, yeah, all of the buzzwords, yeah. all of the consultants. That was the uh, the future of the industry. Right. And, you know, it, it, again, I suppose you, you, you come to another uh, juncture in the road where, you, you know, you, you're, you're at a crossroads or at a, you're at a Y. 
okay, I can stay and become the traditional, or um, it's very clearly this is how the direction and how things are going. And I have an opportunity to get in there right at the very, very beginning and get on board on that. And, you know, the whole team at Restaurant Associates had pulled together. Again, it goes back to the leadership piece. You know, I knew Chris at Grosvenor House because the reason I became banqueting number manager number six was I think he was banqueting manager number three and he moved on. So everybody had a slot. I worked with Chris during his notice period and, you know, just really impressed with him. So for me, it, it was very simple. And it goes back to the whole thing about choosing your boss. Yeah. So what they said then was, okay, well, in order to be an operations manager, first and foremost, um, you have to be a unit manager. And moving over into, you know, in essence, a contract catering company, brand new for me. I hadn't done it previously. So he said, well, we only have one five-star venue that's currently in our portfolio. And that was Somerset House. Right. So I moved over then as general manager catering for Somerset House, which again in trying to think at the time, 2003, the public courtyard with the fountains. And that was a millennium project. Remember remember that period when all that money was um, splashed and all of these big, big projects? That was one of those. So it was still very, very new. Um, Sinead Malozzi, um, who's taken sketch to such great heights, um, she was the first general manager in there. And it really put a fantastic stamp on what it was Superb events, superb qualities. So it was very easy for me to slip in and just try and try and maintain the fantastic work that team did there. So I was at Somerset House for three years. And of course, that was during the period, lots and lots of pop-ups. So again, that's something else that's a, a very common vernacular. But at the period when I went there, pop-ups weren't. So we would have the pop-up summer terrace, which would be introduced in and around Easton, depending on that itself. Uh, that would come through to mid-September, or unless we were having an Indian summer as we are now, it may stretch a couple of weeks. And then the next pop-up was the Ice Rink Cafe. So that would always be open by the um, last week in November, carried through to the very last week in January. And during the summer then, we would have uh, the pop concert. So I think at its height in the pop concerts, there were two or three of them in two different sets uh, running through. And in parallel to that, uh, all these absolutely fantastic high, high level corporate events, either in the courtyard with marquees um, or in the Siemens waiting hall. So uh, in addition to that, we had uh, Morgan Munier was running the Admiralty Restaurant. A fantastic chef. Uh, he was there. We had the Admiralty Deli, so uh, a retail offer um, that was uh, involved there. You know, very, very dynamic, very seasonal, lots of things coming up. And, yeah, I learned a massive, massive amount. I was going to say, a, a little bit of a different focus for you, a, a different way of doing things, but nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, making you more rounded as the days go by. Yeah, and I think uh, at four o'clock in the morning when I was packing away the bars after um, a pop concert, um, that when I was actually looking for, this is helping me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this is doing me some good in, in terms of that. No, that was, that was, a, that was a fantastic opportunity um, in terms of that. 
And off the back of that, then uh, I had the opportunity to get back into uh, mainstream hotels and large scale banqueting. And I had the opportunity to go and run the Cafe Royal as it was prior to its closure. Yeah. Running that, that was clustered with the Meridian Piccadilly. So under, and Anna Dowling was the general manager for both. Yeah. Remember. 15, 16 months exclusively at the Cafe Royal. And then I moved over as the EAM to Le Meridian Piccadilly with a kind of overview of um, the Cafe Royal when my number two there, Paul Boone, stepped up. And we managed the Cafe Royal through to its closure and returned that to the Crown in advance of the construction work that was done before the hotel itself was built. Yeah. So that was fine. That took me up to the financial crisis in 2000 and 2009. And then the position was made redundant in Limeridian Piccadilly. So uh, I had a period when I was off uh, before um, I was invited back by Starwood, Starwood with a parent company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was invited to join the procurement team at Heathrow. So uh, that was the period when uh, Turnbury were just finishing their uh, Starwood refurbishment. So uh, I was doing some assisting, uh, not a huge amount during the time I was there. But again, that was another great experience going up and seeing that, seeing how we could help them. Mm. Um, and I suppose it goes back to your earlier question, Phil, in terms of foundation stones. And I think if I'd ever sat down and wrote a job that, my career was heading towards and the absolute ideal job for me. And I'm desperately trying not to speak in cliches. Um, I think that was the job at Westminster Bridge because it just pulled everything together. So 1,019 bedrooms, 36 meeting rooms, a ballroom that we were told could take 800, but that was only because it was mapped incorrectly, quite easily take 1,200, six different food and beverage outlets, you know, sitting very happily within the upper four star market in terms of what it was. So that was it. So um, I joined approximately six months prior to the opening, responsible for, ironically, as it turned out, all, all of the procurement for the uh, OSE um, to get everything up and running. Uh, within Park Plaza, they had never opened a hotel of that size. So um, under Andrew Swindells, who was at the Metropole in Birmingham, he pulled together a team, a number of us with either five-star experience or large-scale uh, hotel experience. Yeah. And um, we, we opened that. I remember when uh, it hit the scene, to be honest. It, it, it was, um, well, it, it, obviously it's a massive property, but actually from the outside, it doesn't look like it's going to be a huge property. It's a, it's a bit of a TARDIS. No, that's it. And, you know, it's very interesting because I've subsequently um, got to meet the architect who designed it. And I've had the opportunity to learn, you know, his thoughts and philosophy. So even when you're in the hotel itself, it's deliberately designed and curved so that you don't see these expansive long corridors. Right. So the the longest corridor um, that you can see uh, only has... 28 bedrooms right and that's split on both sides so uh very very cleverly done uh fantastic in terms of how to move people around you know with the um i was asked to give a presentation to some students a couple of years ago and on on the day itself 
I went on Google and I looked for population size of towns and cities in the UK. And we figured on the night I was talking to the students, the Park Plaza Westminster Bridge was the 888th largest town or city in the UK. (laughs) That's a a, a fantastic uh, statistic to to deliver in a chat. That's amazing. Um, So so that was that. So I ran, uh, I was the hotel manager for two years. um, And then Andrew Swindells moved up into chief operating officer. And then... Um, I was very fortunate and I was made the general manager. So I was general manager for six years. And in the interim, then I also became the general manager of the central reservations office. Right. So that was something that um, we created. You, you may argue by stealth or by accident, because prior to that, reservations was located all on property on each individual property. But um, one of the hotels had a GM, uh, sorry, a res manager vacancy. So they needed some assistance. So I said, well, why didn't you just pull, come down and sit in our office and we'll help you there? So they moved in and decided they didn't want to leave. Then another hotel had exactly the same. So uh, over the period of a year, um, all of the London hotels then uh, were operating in the reservations office. Um, so I ran that department as well for a couple of years before we handed it over to commercial. Yeah. So after six years um, there, I had the opportunity to uh, become the uh, regional GM for the UK. So that was responsible just for the hotels themselves and not any of the commercial functions. And then 18 months ago now, I became the VP. And in that, I took over the commercial functions uh, and some of the other head office functions as well. Yeah. So, Bill, you, you made the first uh, real mistake insofar as you asked me a very short question, and unfortunately, <laughs> I'm now giving you, I think, a 45-minute response. No, that's that one that, question. That's exactly what what we're uh, what we're looking for. It's uh, absolutely supposed to be about about your journey and kind of your your decision making and uh, you know how these things come about because every journey is completely different, and some people. You are benefactors of just being in in the right place at the right time. Some people force the issue. Some people make mistakes before they they settle on a path. But it seems to me like your journey is has been very much been about almost a, a a mix of kind of whatever life throws at you. Let's let's give this a go. And it doesn't feel like you've made too many career errors. Everything had something some part to play in in you ending up where you are. You know, it's interesting. Quite often when, you know, students ask me and, you know, when we do the lectures or anything else that we do, you know, how do you become a general manager? I said, it's very, very simple to become a general manager. Yeah, there are only two rules. Number one, don't burn the hotel down. And number two, (laughs) don't pee in the flower pots. So they they always look at me very, very vacantly. And I said, okay, let me me give you a little bit more clarity. Uh, Don't burn the hotel down. It means you just do the job you're in to the very, very best of your ability because your boss needs to promote you more than you need to be promoted. Yeah. Um, You know, when you're doing um, succession planning, when you're doing team building and whatever else, the core issue you've got is who's going to do it. So if if you're just dedicated at your job, you just get your head down, you do it, you learn, you know, you fulfill all of the other brand promises once you get to a certain level, that's that's just assumed that you understand um, all of those bits and pieces. But your boss is more concerned about promoting you than you are. Okay, uh, he needs you 
technically more than you would in. So just don't burn the hotel down. And, you know, in terms of then of the uh, don't pee in the flower pot is integrity. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, just behave yourself. Uh, res- resist the temptation, you know, true to you, know, know what you're doing. You know, and it, it's, you know, I, I always say, you know, thankfully I made most of the key mistakes, particularly, you know, in terms of not peeing in the flower pots yeah. early enough in my career that a gentle tap on the shoulder and whisper in the ear was sufficient um, to put me back on track. Yeah. But, you know, and, and it, it's to me, it, it's just it's just very, very clear. Yeah. Um, you know, just just do your job to the very, very best of your ability. Yeah. The, the other thing about that is if you're doing your job to the, to the best of your ability, then, you know, if you do step out of line slightly just because you didn't know any better, then the likelihood of forgiveness in that scenario is much greater. And I, I say that out of experience because I remember being very young and, and given my first management role and I was a head down crack on kind of a guy and um, was was making very very good progress and then you know I had a, a, a moment a lapse in concentration let's call it that and as you just said I was I suppose rather than reprimanded I was given a, a rap across the knuckles and that was enough to make me realize you know that's not the path I want to go down. Yeah I, I, listen you know it Phil, the you know we we touched on it earlier. If you have a look at the massive, massive responsibility that's available, you know, at the very early stage in your career, yeah, you know, uh, the the potential for all of the pitfalls um, that are around the, you know, you, you you've got really, really intense, you know, relationships in terms of commitment, the hours people are working at, and be easy enough just moment as you say momentarily have a little lapse of judgment but yeah as you're young and you're kind of learning life and and all of that i think these these moments are inevitable it it, a lot rests on your own attitude towards your own kind of misdemeanors but also the the leadership that you have you know you can be you can be lucky or not i suppose and and i think it sounds like you you had good leaders i'd certainly had great leaders on my journey as well yeah, I, uh, no, listen, yeah, you've, you've, you've nailed that one on the head, Phil. Absolutely. Great stuff. So uh, it's, it's nice to get some things right occasionally on this show. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you about 2019 because on the face of it, it was quite a, a successful year for, for your, I suppose, pocket uh, of, of the PPHE group. You were the AA Large Hotel Group of the Year, as I understand it, and and also you you joined the the FTSE Two Fifty. That's a busy year. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting, and it, it's almost then um, a chicken and egg scenario, right? So it was the aspiration of the owners to to join the FTSE Two Fifty, and had been for a number of years. But in order to do that, you've obviously all of the corporate governance pieces that are there. You need to have a clearly defined strategy. So, you know, the 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 real work for the FTSE 250 probably began five years in advance. Sure. And in order to have that discipline and, you know, and move from uh, an entrepreneurial um, hotel, you know, company, you know, and one of one of the key USPs for Park Plaza is that um, we decision making process is astoundingly fast. If need be. 
right? You know, it's it's for not not even for me, but for a number of other leaders in in um, other positions and more junior positions within the company. Um, you get access to the chairman and the CEO whenever you want. You know, they they see you, they come into your hotels. Um, so to from that kind of this is who we are to the no, we we have to have more structure, we have to ensure corporate governance, all of those elements. That journey began five years ago. Right. And as a byproduct of that, in clearly defining the strategy, then in terms of you know, the, the usual culprits, um, our people, our property, how we operate, what we're going to do, you then begin to draw up the guidelines. And the the Key, the two key areas in terms and what really surprised me about the uh, the AA process and what we recommended for, it wasn't necessarily just the physical element of the of the properties, which I suppose in my youthful naivety, I would have thought so. Um, it was about the human capital. Right. And it was a recognition of everything that we were doing in terms of our team, um, the development, the training modules, um, the ability to show advancement at all levels through the organization. Um, and I suppose in particular, the uh, apprenticeships and, and how we ran them. So, um, no, you're, you're, you're quite right. It was, it was a busy year, but it was busier more in terms of the recognition than the hard work. So the, the hard work had been going on for, um, yeah, probably five years prior. Yeah. Well, that's a, a lesson in perseverance, if ever I've heard it, and and also I, I think the the point there was was actually the point about people was that you know, you can have the this comes up on in numerous conversations and it's you know it's a bit cliched but it's completely true. I mean, you can have the most beautiful buildings in the world that people can recognise and and give you credit for, but the the buildings are nothing without a, a, you know a really wonderful team behind them yeah I, I, look it, it that's um and, and i suppose that's become even more relevant now as everybody's under the immense pressure that they're under yeah uh, you know and it it, it it was funny i was talking to one of the junior managers so one of our operations managers uh, and he had an issue in his hotel and he was he was he was reaching out to me for a solution and kind of i said listen i said when you call for help I said, um, I want to hear an echo. And he said, what do you mean you want to hear an echo? I said, I want to hear, if your team are in a hole, yeah, I want to hear an echo because you're in the hole with them. Yeah. Um, if, if I don't hear an echo, it's because they're in the hole and you're at the top looking down at them in the hole. And what we, what we found, and a, again, I'm desperately trying to avoid uh, the cliches, but that's exactly what we found through all of this crisis. Okay, is that first and foremost, all of the ops, ops managers, all of the general managers, everybody are working alongside the team. Yeah, you know, we we had, and he won't mind, he won't mind me saying it, but Niall Waters, our general manager, we have at Paul, we had somebody coming in from a show round about two weeks ago, and the person arrived ten minutes early and went to use the facilities to freshen up, and when he went down, the he started to talk to the attendant who was cleaning the toilets. Yeah. Um, also, yep. the attendant was there refreshing everything. Um, he went up and he sat down, called for the general manager. Ten minutes later, the general manager began to greet him. That was the attendant who was down cleaning the toilets and making sure they were ready in advance of the show round. Yeah. You know, um, and that 
absolutely typical through all of the properties at the moment. Yeah. You know, in, in in terms of what we were doing. And that's even when team members have known that some of their colleagues have lost their position while we have extended team members still on furlough and we're placing that additional responsibility. The general managers um, have built up a, built up enough credibility with their individual team members that, and the team members know that yes we're in a hole but there is an echo and the echo is because the general manager is in the hole with them yeah, yeah. not shouting from the lip of it down yeah i think that's a, a massive point actually in the the, the time that we're in it, it's inevitable that tough decisions have to be made in this kind of crisis that we're in and more will have to be made i'm i'm sure but you know there is a way that you can go about that that still means that everybody's respect is intact and and that's the key point for me uh, with with any business i mean if you're focused on the human element of what we're going through then then the decision making that that you'll make won't be too far away i think from from where you need to be yeah, and you know i think um it 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 is it is it is painful and yeah. the the whole point about it is to whatever you do, do it with a touch of humanity and humility. Yeah, yeah. The um the one thing I will say just to to, to move it away from um, that wonderful subject matter, but um you've on a couple of occasions you've tried to avoid cliches, as you say, but cliches are inevitable on in this show. There is not a, a show that goes by without a cliche coming out. So so don't ever worry about clicheing around me. <laughs> I think one of the, the main takeaways from, from your journey for me is very much about the fact that you said at the beginning you're, you're 25 years, pretty much, in the industry. In that time, you've seen four economic hits, if you like. I mean, at the end of the day, that just demonstrates that adversity is absolutely inevitable. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I think. Listen, the um, within within one hour of the you know the decision made in terms of the lockdown, um, I called all of the general managers together, um, and uh, all of all of the all of the regional leaders, and I said to them exactly what Paolo Bishoni said to me in two thousand and one with nine eleven, and we were in Grosvenor House, and he said to me, in Grosvenor House, no matter what happens in the world we will be the last hotel in London to close if need, and we will keep going until that period. Yeah, um, and I said exactly the same thing to the team. So it didn't come up with anything new. I just rebadged it, repolished it. And then the one thing I said to them is, if the great thing now is I'm hearing the language coming back to me, is we will be fittest longest. Yeah. Very, very simple message. Guys, we'll be fittest longest. Yeah, so whatever we're doing, and when we're making those hard decisions... We're not breaking things down. We're making them stronger. Yeah. And we're building them to be the fittest team for the longest possibility that we have. Yeah. Um, and right. and that's, that's, just, that's just part and parcel, I think, of that message. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're, you're a master in holder, I believe. Yes. Very, very proud. Well, that's, um, just talk me through that because that's not something I think that you can go and pursue that's something that is uh, i suppose bestowed upon you look i think the and we we just had the EPM last week and the amazing danny peccarelli um handed over to uh, morgan hewitt yeah in in terms of that and i suppose i'm fortunate enough in that i've been able to see the 
great transition in the master inholders where they're uh, reaching out so much more in the last five or six years. Uh, actually, sorry, it's longer than that because they're on cohort nine. So they're on uh, with the uh, Master Inholders Aspiring Leaders uh, Development Program yep. run with uh, Dr. Hilary Cook with the massive, massive investment in um, young, young leaders coming through. So, you know, it, it's formed from the Worshipful Company of Inholders. They received their charter from Henry VIII in uh, 1515. Um, so over 500 years in existence. Um, coming through and it really is it's about everything to how do we promote the industry what do we do to ensure that we're adding back and the one thing that I was very very impressed with the master inholders is that continual ethos about helping and reaching out and funny enough the liveliest debate at the AGM um, this year and indeed last year was uh, the mentoring scheme Right. Yeah. You know, how many mentors, how many MIs are currently mentoring? How many people are we reaching out to? Is there a possibility there for more um, where it where it comes? And, you know, they also the magnificent sponsorship opportunities. You know, I was fortunate enough in terms of I received a scholarship to go to Cornell uh, to join the general managers uh, program. Some of the uh, operations managers at that level as they're coming through, um, they received scholarships. Um, so, and that's that's the bit which helps you make the transition from being an operator to being a strategic leader, and how you can manage the company. So, um, I'm eternally grateful to the opportunity the master inholders gave me, you know, and the the whole of everything about their ethos, what they do, how they do it, and as I said, the, the liveliest debate amongst you know all of the inholders who were on the the Zoom call was about the growth and development. Yeah, how, yeah. how are we helping? What are we doing for the industry? Um, where it goes? Um, you know, and the the uh, MIL uh, Master Inholders Aspiring Leaders Development Program MIALD, and that's one thing I would say to um, any listeners on your call who are in positions of leadership. That's open um, across a broad, broad spectrum, uh, not just hotels, also in the catering. If you've got some yeah, young talent that's coming through, it's done over a series of weekends. It's hosted at the most amazing hotels uh, all around the country. Uh, and again, I think um, all in uh, MI, um, general manager properties. So they do that. I think it's over six or seven weekends, um, taking them through what they're learning, what they're seeing, building fantastic networks. So um, yeah. I think the you know the the real shame in terms of the the master inholders is that we haven't reached as many people yet as possible, and the number of applications coming each year are actually increasing year on year. And I think last year was a record in terms of the number of people um, who completed the application process. Great, yeah. Well, I, I think the the giving back thing and also kind of raising the the profile. I mean, I can't imagine the amount of knowledge and experience that that um that sits in in a master inholders networking event you know if you haven't if not one of those people have dealt with something then it's not worth worth dealing with i, I would imagine but also 
I think the key point for me is is the for and this is one of the reasons I started this podcast was sometimes the 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 word that gets out about hospitality is is just all the 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 perceived negative stuff but actually day in day out for the people who live and breathe this industry they're you know it's just full of wonderful things all the time and it's just such an amazing career and I I just wanted to do my bit in terms of trying to tell the world that actually what you may have heard is not true and look at all these amazing journeys and look at all these amazing things and and fun and stupid things that happen uh, along the way if you want to have a laugh but also make a serious career it's uh, I don't think there's a better career to choose no and I th- I think that you're you're quite right Phil and I, that's the um the big, big challenge, you know, it, it's very interesting in my daughter's school and my son's school um, when they have the, the job fairs yep. uh, where they invite the parents to come in and set up their stalls. I can count on one hand the number of parents who've approached me over all of the years that I've been doing it in both of those schools. Really? Yeah. Um, the kids approach me. And again, it's trying to get over those preconceptions of, you know, what does the industry have to offer? What does it do? And, and everything else. But it is, it's, it's absolutely incredible. You know, my daughter's now 19. When she was 16, she did a, uh, her school were very, very good. And again, off her own bat, she lined up five different sets of work experience. Um, and I deliberately left hotels to the very end. And she worked in all sorts of environments coming through. And when she got to the end, um, and I said to her, how did you find it? She said, I didn't realize, she said, but hotels were the most professional organization out of all of the ones that she did. Yeah. I, I, I won't name the ones, uh, the companies that she went to, but um, they were all blue chip. Most of them were FTSE 100. And I think, you know, that's why it's incumbent upon all of us in terms of identify young talent, exactly as, um, you know, Rosemary did my first GM when I was 15 years old, in terms of saying, you seem to have talent for this. You know, it's, it seems this is, a, this is a great career. I had no intention whatsoever um, in going into hotels. Um, and exactly as you said, um, it's given me a um, and I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad about that because you're um you're quite deep in now. <laughs> no, that's great. I I um I'm getting a little bit conscious of time, but I'd, uh, if you'll indulge me for a little while longer, there, there's a question that I'd I'd like to ask sure. everyone, which is you know from from your career so far, do you have any funny stories that you could share with us? Because I'm I'm sure there are some that you can't. Good heavens, do I have any? Uh, well, I suppose uh, I, I joke. Um, you, look, Westminster Bridge, we spoke about it in terms of the size and scale and everything that you see. It's not yeah. unusual on a Saturday night to have 2,500 sleepers um, coming, right. coming, yeah. in, coming, coming into that hotel. So um, you see everything. Because one of the things I say about hotels is that they're a microfine glass on life. Yeah, very good. You, you see absolutely everything. Um, and I thought I'd seen everything. So with my my number two, you know, Suat, when I was there and when I moved out, he took over as GM. He said we would joke if something popped up. I'd say to him, you can put that one in your autobiography because I've had I've had one of them before. Yeah. And that's how we we trade stories. So he he phoned me um, last Monday and he said, uh, I've had one over the weekend, he said, but I'm keeping it from my autobiography. <laughs> I said, what's that? He said, well, we had we had a couple of youngsters. They took a tweet. 
they were getting a little bit loud. So we, security went and dealt with them. And then we, uh, we asked their additional guests to leave. When they were packing up, they had a small little dog. I went, yeah, okay. Said, but um, the security guard got a little bit cautious when the guy picked up a snake. Oh, geez. I, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't be a little bit cautious. I'd have been running the other direction. So there we go, Phil. And I think that's a perfect one to finish. Uh, no matter what you think you've seen, no matter what you think you've done, um, even after all these years, there's still something else that will pop off and give you an extra Oh, absolutely. Great stuff. Well, um, if people want to get a hold of you to, to chew the fat and learn a little bit more about you and the and the company, what's what's the best method for them to do that? Uh, oh, listen, all the usual. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, pop me a message through LinkedIn um, or alternatively on that one, my email address is dpadreski which is P-E-D-R-E-S for sugar, C-H-I, at P-E-D-A-T-I. Fabulous. Well, that's been great. I'd, I'd really appreciate your time and, and thank you for, for sharing your, your journey with us today. It's been, uh, it's been a cracker. Not at all. It's, it's been quite cathartic. Um, uh, it, it's almost like a pseudo-confession for me. So uh, thanks very much for the yeah. opportunity. Uh, You're very, very welcome. And I wish you and, and all your teams the, the very best through this, this next interesting period. Great. Thanks very much, Phil. Hope to talk to you soon. Will do. Thanks, Daniel. Cheers. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. And there we have it. A fabulous career so far for Daniel, told with such energy and vigour. Daniel's story also highlights what can happen when you take responsibility for your own actions and get your head down and crack on. Nice one, Daniel. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week, so hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share where you can. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>